welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Uh, to do that. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to chapter 5, verses 11 is where we are. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you that you can pick up. I heard a story recently, a story of two pieces of currency. It's hard to think about currency now because everything is so digital, but I heard a story this week about uh, two pieces of currency, a $100 bill and a $1 bill. The $100 bill told the $1 bill, I've been to all sorts of places. I've been to Commander's Palace. I've been to the Superdome. I've been to the Smoothie King Center. I've been in Christmas presents. I've been in wedding gifts and baby showers to Disney World. And I've been to all of these places. I have seen the world and have been in some remarkable and very luxurious places. The $1 bill said, I haven't been to all of those places, but I tell you this much, I'm in church every Sunday morning. Nothing makes us more uncomfortable than stories about giving, especially stories about giving in church, especially stories about dropping dead because of giving at church. And you just heard one of those such stories that comes in Acts chapter 5 about a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped dead, both of them. And it seems to be something to do with giving and church. This morning we will consider together the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 because you'll notice in the beginning of Acts chapter 5, remember the chapter and verses of the Bible are not inspired. Uh, they were put there by man to help us find places quickly and as places for reference. And so sometimes a story is broken up by two different chapters. One such story is this. And so at the beginning of chapter 5, you see, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. That but is connecting us to what is happening in the end of chapter 4. And what we'll see in this text, let me kind of give you a road map of, of where we're going to kind of get you a mental picture of where all of this is driving. What we'll see is is a cameo of, of the early church. And what we see in this early church and the early church is, is a culture of grace. And in, the, and in this culture of grace that we'll see in chapter 4, we'll see uh, two displays of how that tangibly plays out in some folks' lives. We'll see two givers that contrast a culture of grace, and one who exemplifies and contributes to that culture, and a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who threaten or disrupt the culture of grace in the early church and how the Lord responds to that. And what we will discover is that generosity is undergirded by grace. In other words, think of the widow's might. She gave more sacrificially. Uh, She gave everything that she had while she was picked apart by the folks um, who tithed everything. Their spice cabinet, they tithed everything they did, but they were tithing, but they were not sacrificial in their giving like the widow and the might. So so the issue here, let's say it right off before we kind of give give answers here, uh, the issue is not so much the amount, it's the heart that's captured or isn't captured by grace is the issue. Tied into all of this is unity in the church. So we talk about unity in a culture of grace and, and two people who are exemplifying, one person who exemplifies and one person who threats, threatens this. And so we'll see all of those pieces 
put together uh, here in a moment. So, so let's start to put all of this together. As we saw last week, the church was unified. They were praying, filled with the Spirit uh, for boldness and proclaiming the gospel. And we saw that there was no price that they weren't willing to pay, that they would keep preaching the gospel no matter what. And now we will see there should be no price to protect unity within the church. So outside the church, there's no price to pay. In proclaiming the gospel inside the church, there's no price we should not be willing to pay in order to uphold unity in the church. So let's put all that together. The church was together. The church was unified. Go ahead and take a look. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. So this is the first big thing I want you to know. The church was together. The church was unified. Now the full number, verse 32 of chapter 4, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They're one And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This new community was together. They were striving side by side, and they were together in word and deed and generosity. Everything that they had, they shared in common. And they were only together because of the work of the Spirit in their life. Here's a big truth I want you to know about unity. Listen good. The unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. I'll say that again. The unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. It's not too far back uh, in your Bible there. If you flip backwards there, John 17, starting in verse 20. Listen to what Jesus prayed for his disciples and those who would believe You and I, the church, even as it is here today, listen to what Jesus prayed just moments before his crucifixion. Here's what he prays to the Father. He prays, I don't ask for these only, praying for his the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Us even today. That, here's what I pray for them, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that, so be unified just as God in three persons, the Trinity is unified. God, may they display that unity and know that unity for all who believe so that, the purpose, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of the church is essential for the mission of the church. The glory that you have given me, he goes on to pray, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you have loved me. So that's the prayer of Jesus Moments before he goes to the cross, I pray that they will be unified so that the world would know that you sent me, so that the world would see the love of God in Christ Jesus in their midst by the way that they love one another. The unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. They're unified in in truth. We see that in John chapter 17, verse 20. I pray for these and all who believe the word that I've given you, and the word that you will preach. And so this unity comes around the word of God. We see that in Acts chapter 4. This is the, the prayer of Jesus coming to fruition, if you will. 
that the full number of those who believed were of one heart. Just as Jesus prayed, they are experiencing. One writer said this, We share something more powerful than a common experience or a shared interest. We share Christ, and we don't need to compromise the truth to be unified. Our unity does not come from de-emphasizing the truth of God's revelation. So they proclaim the truth of who Christ is, and they experience unity, and that unity is essential to the mission of the church. And something else they experience here is not only unity and unity in truth, but unity in diversity. There's some rich among them, there's some poor among them, but they have everything in common. There was not anything that was not all of their their own. Some had land, some were needy, and so they worked together. They strove side by side for the gospel, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 12, verse 4, and chapter 12, verse 12. He says that we are all different, but we all have the same spirit. Many gifts, we come from many backgrounds, many socioeconomic backgrounds, and all these other different things, but what holds us together is the truth, and what holds us together in unity is Christ. Here's what one author says. He says, unity in the church is a powerful testimony in the world. So so here's what I want you to be, so this is essential to the mission. This is what they're experiencing, unity in the church. And I want you to see how important this is and how powerful this is of what they are experiencing. Real unity, he goes on to write, is a supernatural work and points to a supernatural reason. Jesus lives in us. An old Puritan, Thomas Manton, said this, Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Divisions in the church bring, breed atheism in the world. According to Acts chapter 4, verses 32, they're experiencing unity so that the world might see the love of God in Christ Jesus in their midst. Another writer goes on to say, the church is the visible display of God's goodness to this world. Each local church, local church is the visible display of God's kindness to its community. We don't have any photographs of Jesus, he goes on to write, but he says the church is like the photograph. The church is the picture of his love and mercy. There's a picture frame around each church, he says, and a sign above that says, come and see what God is like. When a non-Christian sees a unified church, the only logical conclusion is God loves us just like he loves Jesus. And so we want people to see that the love of God is real, that the power of the Spirit is real, and the people of God are experiencing that in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Bottom line, unity matters. It's kind of a big deal. Our power rests upon the power of Christ and being unified around that. And our display of love to the world depends upon that. Jesus said it so that they would know. So the church is together. Point number two, the church was together because of grace. The church is together and unified. We've already mentioned that a little bit already. They're unified in truth and even in all their diversity, they were unified because they're unified around Christ. They're unified around grace. Look at verse 33. So we see that unity in verse 32. Listen to verse 33. And with great power, this is the power there. We want a powerful church. Well, here, here, here it is. With great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And so they were experiencing great grace among them. Earlier in Acts, we read that they had favor, they had grace with the people. And that is still true of the unified church. And what's more, we're seeing here that God's favor was upon them. He was working mightily and distinctly among him. He was working in such a way that it was clear that God was among them. And he was doing that by forming them around the preaching of the resurrected Christ. Here's another big truth. The power the power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrected Christ. The preaching of the word, the ministry of the word is vital to the church. And unity will come as we preach, as we rally around, as we submit our lives to the word of God, as we submit our lives to the testimony of the scripture, which proclaims a resurrected Christ. That's where the power of the church comes from, from preaching a resurrected Christ, from believing in a resurrected Christ, from God himself, the resurrected Christ, working among us as he fills us with the Holy Spirit. We have power struggles in our own hearts, in our own churches. We are Americans, by golly, and this idea of sharing makes us uncomfortable. We like to accomplish things. We like to big build big things and We like movements and branding. We like to get noticed. But we see what's foundational for a powerful church is a unified church, namely unified around the preaching of the resurrected Christ. Why? In the resurrection, we see the power of God over sin and death. In the resurrection, we see the power of God over sin and death. The resurrection frees us because Christ was raised for our justification. Because his sacrifice was perfect and exactly what we needed, he conquered sin and death for us. We deserve death, but he canceled the record of death that stood against us. And now the Bible says we are raised through him. He's the resurrected Christ. And brother and sister, if you are in Christ, the Bible says you are raised with him. In Christ Jesus, through faith in the powerful working of God. That's glorious good news. That you are raised in power. That the power of sin and death no longer has a hold on you. Your past, your sin, the power of death, the wages of sin and death no longer has a hold on you. Because by faith you are raised with God in the resurrected Christ. And now, and now church... Unified church preaching this resurrected Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that Christ now leads us in triumphal procession. All of these resurrected folks walking through the world, all of these new creations who are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, we are being preceded through the world, the Bible says, in a triumphal procession spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So get this, the unified church, unified by grace, unified in the power of the resurrection, is seeing this great movement of God in their midst, and God is leading them in a triumphal procession, and the world is smelling the fragrance 
of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This image of spreading the fragrance comes from the victory parades of Roman generals where they would lead captured prisoners through a city to announce military triumphs. In these processions, the prisoners would be tasked with spreading incense. And so what Paul is saying here that he and the other apostles and those whom Christ has has captured, those whom Christ has redeemed, those who he has taken from sin and death and raised to life, those that he has bought and resurrected with his own precious power, they are the prize of our Lord's victory. And we are spreading the sweet fragrance of the power and the preciousness of the gospel throughout the world. Our life is hidden with God in Christ. Your old self has died and you've been raised with him. You are a resurrected people and all of this is grace. And so they look around at the brothers and sisters. Oh, you, you smell like Jesus too. Oh, it's like smelling salts. Jesus is so strong and so kind to us. What was their motivation? What was their power? It was the resurrected Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit having his way among them. And it was all, all grace that was forming this unified grace culture. That's what I'm getting at. This grace-cultured community. It's glorious, isn't it? You want to protect that at all costs. We don't want to smell. To some, it'll be as a stench, those who don't believe, but we don't want to stink because we are law-cultured or works-cultured or self-cultured or some glory to our own self-cultured. We want to smell like Christ and grace and mercy and His strong kindness too. Don't you want to smell like that? They smelled like this. Here's what it looks like. Here's a tangible sign. So unified, unified with grace. So they have this grace culture among them. Listen to some of these tangible signs. They see the power of people coming to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Power with um, the word of God was spreading among them. They're preaching God with, God with boldness. And now they're up to over 5,000 people who have been saved in that short amount of time. God is giving them great favor and blessing them. Great grace was upon them all. Verse 33, look at verse 34. Some tangible signs of this grace was people coming to to faith. And then inside the church, here are some tangible signs. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to each and any as had need. So we see that Everyone shared everything to anyone. This wasn't necessarily socialism or communism. This was just radical generosity out of grace-captured people that they want to make sure their brothers and sisters were taken care of. What they were doing in these tangible signs of grace, they were stewarding. That's a big word. Maybe you can write that word down. They were stewarding their possessions for kingdom purposes. They realized that everything they had was God's anyway. Everything that they owned, land included, it was all God's. And so they were going to figure out a way to show grace and steward their treasure 
so that those in their midst would know grace and those in the world would be able to behold that grace and smell that grace. And so they had this tangible sign of grace as they stewarded their possessions. Steward means I don't own it, but I use it for another purpose. It's all God, so I just steward what God has blessed me with. They saw their possessions as gifts, as something to be stewarded rather than treasures to be hoarded. And so they're making sure everybody among them is taken care of in unity so that the world would know. Because above everything, they want the world to know of how they're loved in God. And so that they would know, the world would also know. I love how John Piper says this. Um, He says, being a Christian means being changed from the inside out so that you fall in love with people and fall out of love with things. You fall in love with people and out of love with things. Great grace was upon them all. You would want to protect that at all costs, right? We want the fragrance of the knowledge of him to be spread everywhere. And then in these tangible expressions of this grace, we get two examples. We see grace demonstrated by a man named Barnabas. Let's keep reading. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So one such example of this radical generosity, it was just not something they they kind of thought about or did, but they actually did those things. There were tangible expressions of those things. They they were unified, and there's actual people who actually did this, and one was Barnabas, called the, the son of encouragement. He sells his land, his property. We don't know how much he had or what the the price was or whatever else. He simply lays it at the apostles' feet. Not a whole lot of fanfare. But that's how we're introduced to Barnabas. This is not the last we'll hear of Barnabas, mind you. Later, we'll meet Barnabas as an advocate of uh, the new convert, Paul. We'll read about Barnabas as a shepherd of new Gentile converts in Antioch, all through Acts. We'll read about Barnabas again, the one who trusted, uh, was, was entrusted with relief for the poor. We'll read about Barnabas again. He was the partner of Paul on his missionary journeys. We'll read about him again. He was the advocate for giving John Mark a second chance in Acts chapter 15, verse 37. Throughout the scriptures, Barnabas will shine as one of the most mature, reliable, and lovable leaders of the early church. And right here in Acts chapter 4, Luke shows us where this ministry began. It began when he demonstrated freedom from the love of things and a heart for the love of the poor and the love of those among him. As one who is demonstrating grace and displaying grace in that grace-filled, gospel-filled community. He sold his field and gave all the proceeds to the apostles And in this story, he stands for the way of true faith in Christ, which creates a bond of love for people and cuts a bond of love for things, as one writer says. So grace is demonstrated by Barnabas. Maybe the one you want to know about is these two who drop dead, Ananias and Sapphira. Grace demonstrated, but verse 1 of chapter 5, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge, and he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
I read it a moment ago. You know how this story turns out. Grace, grace was upon them in chapter 4, and now great fear was upon the church in Acts chapter 5. We see the connections here that Barnabas, uh, the Levite, the one from Cyprus, he sold a piece of property. And, and here in chapter 5, we see that someone else does the same exact thing. And so Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see the parallels here. That we have Barnabas who demonstrates great grace. And, and you know how this ends. For the, It seems like they do the same thing. They also sold a piece of property. But Ananias drops dead. And three hours later, his wife comes in and she drops dead and they bury them. And all who heard of these things were called, and all who heard about these things had great fear come upon them. What was the problem? Was it because Ananias and Sapphira sold the wrong piece of property? Was it because they, they didn't give everything? Was it because they were under compulsion to give? No. Uh, when the apostles call them out here, they said, wasn't that land yours to do what you wanted with? That's, that's what they said. Was it not at your disposal? While it even remained unsold, that was the land the Lord had given you. And so, so was it because of the amount? Is it because they didn't give enough? What's going on here? What's going on here? And why the Lord takes them out, I hope you see this, is they are disrupting the grace of that community. And if the culture of grace is disrupted, we will be a powerless, stinky, smelly people to the world. It'll almost be like the stench of death instead of the stench of life. And so what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira is that there was a threat to unity. There was a threat to unity. And while Luke spends more time on them than Barnabas. He's calling our attention to this because he wants us to see the cost of threatening gospel grace-filled culture in a local church. That maintaining a culture of grace is worth fighting for so that we would be a grace-filled, spirit-empowered, unified church. So what's, what's going on in their hearts? The, the apostles, call, Peter calls them out particularly Look at verse 3. They hold back some of this. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit. So, so we get, there's lying to the Holy Spirit. You might want to underline that. That's the problem. It's not so much the amount or what. They're lying to the Holy Spirit, and they have kept back for yourself part of the proceeds from the land. Why did they lie? Why did they deceive? Satan, being sneaky as he is, put this in their hearts. What is it? It's not that big of a deal. Just hold some back. Satan will undermine unity at any cost. And this deception began in their heart. God, would you search our hearts to see if there is any disrupting work in our life that is harming the community of grace. They appear to be generous. They appear to be sacrificial. They appear to be a part of the team. But they were intentional in their deception. Likely what's going on here, why did they lie to the Holy Spirit? We know that's the problem. It's likely they see Barnabas as the son of encouragement. Let's be like him. Let's have a name like him. Let's call attention to ourselves so that people will think we're generous too. And just like the Pharisees who 
give everything, tithe everything, but they're not being sacrificial in their giving. They hold a little back for their own glory. What did they do wrong? Was it because he didn't relinquish his property and his money to the apostles? No. Is it because he did not submit uh, to their authority? Not necessarily. After the, all, the apostles did have special authority. The problem was that he lied to the Holy Spirit. In doing so, he lied to God. The word here is pilfered for what it's worth. <laughs> Acts chapter 5, verse 2, they held back, they pilfered. In the Greek New Testament, that's used for only one other time, and that's in the sin of Achan. Remember the sin of Achan? Jericho is destroyed. God said, destroy everything. Keep nothing for yourselves. That's what I've commanded you to do. Achan pilfered things that were to be dedicated to the Lord. And the people of God were, guess what? Powerless. Even against Ai. The weakest of people that they thought they would overrun in just a moment, they could not even defeat Ai because his sin affected the whole bunch. Because he was pilfering what belonged to the Lord. Israel was powerless. Perhaps, too, in Acts chapter 5, the church would be powerless. And they start pilfering the things that belong to the Lord. They wanted to look the parts. And they could not stay around because of their sin. And their sin would disrupt the community of grace and the power of God among them. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. One of the prophets say, sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. So this awestruck fear comes upon all of them. And really it makes me wonder... If someone like Ananias and Sapphira were asking a question like, like is, is the Spirit of God really working among us? Like, come on. Is God going to really move in power? They've, they've seen all of these things. Is God going to really notice what I'm doing with my life? Can't I just look the part? And even more, they lie to the Holy Spirit. And say, yes, Lord, I will do this, but they do not. And you see there is malicious intent here that his wife was in on it. And she lied too. The Lord took them out. And you say, man, that's, that's crazy. Do we pass the plates now and see how many of us make it out alive? <laughs> I know that just makes you uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable too. So is that the point? I think the point is that in the story of these two givers, I think the so what is how do our lives contribute to the culture of grace and the power of the resurrected Christ in, the, in, this, in this body? And do our lives have things in there that are disrupting the community of grace? So yes, the, the question of generosity is here. Does your generosity come from grace? You're like the Pharisees. That widow's not given much. Dude, she's given more sacrificially than the dude that just gave a million dollars. We're holding back. This is not something for the poor or the rich. This is for all of us. The widow understood more, grace more than the religious. Makes us ask, so what? What do we see? 
Do we see budgets and buildings and programs, or do we see blood-covered, blood-bought, Jesus-loved people? And we'll do anything to protect the unity of Christ that is among us. How might we disrupt unity? They did it by lying to the Holy Spirit. We can also do this by sowing seeds of discord. That's what was happening. They were lying to the church, and this wasn't gossip, but it had the same effects. What we say and what we do, our words matter. How might we disrupt unity? Listen to what the Proverbs say. A worthless person, you might hear a little Ananias and Sapphire here. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, crooked speech, saying one thing and mean the other. He winks with his eyes and signals with his feet, points with his finger, and with a perverted heart desires evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, in a moment, and he will be broken beyond healing. So what? What do you talk about? What do you talk about with people here and people in our midst? Do you protect unity at all costs? Or do you sow seeds of discord? And will we heed Acts chapter 5? Satan's putting that in your heart. Are you under the influence of Satan or the Holy Spirit is the question. Another question is, so what? What are we sowing? We will reap what we sow. Are we trying to be like Ananias and Sapphira and sowing these facades just to look the part? Maybe we need to drop facades. Stop pretending. Let's stop giving to be the guy or girl who gives and let's stop promoting ourselves to be seen and let's stop doing the thing just so that we look the part. Let's stop pretending to be the part and let's forget about ourselves and magnify his name. That's why we have unity. So they'll know Jesus and we'll smell like him. And sometimes just not personally, but as a church, we we want the facade, we want the look, but we don't want to be Barnabas. The Lord spits out lukewarm churches. And Ananias, he was stingy. He wanted to appear generous, but he lied and he scorned and doubted the real presence of God among us. And so maybe the so what is, do we really believe and long to see the holy presence of God among us? Even today, the Holy Spirit is discredited in the church. Some people come to worship, myself included at times, and operate totally on the human level, never even reckoning with the presence of the living God in this room. As Pastor writes, some come and give theoretical assent to his presence, but don't really come to terms with the awesome fact that he hears every thought in our minds and sees every imagination of our hearts. And others come and convince themselves that the thoughts of the heart are not that serious enough to forsake because grace means tolerance. In each of these cases, the spirit is discredited and demeaned. I think primarily what's going on here, Hebrews chapter 10, 29 says, it is possible to outrage the spirit of grace. 
Ananias and Sapphira outraged the spirit of grace. And God removed them from the midst to protect the unity and the fragrance of the local church. So this is the warning that Luke puts before us. It's a heavy warning. Anytime someone <laughs> drops in like that during offering time, it's, <laughs> it's a heavy thing. But I hope you see that it is about our generosity being founded upon grace and being wanting to show grace. But don't let the application stop there. Let's be a Barnabas, encouragers, who gives our lives away for the glory of Jesus Christ so that the fragrance of him might be spread everywhere. Whether people see it or not, let's steward everything we have, our resources, our life, our time, everything for the kingdom. Let's not be people who outrage the spirit of grace, but live and experience the power of his grace, the power of the resurrected Christ who is among us. Let's pray.